Hi, I'm Casey Mraz, and you're listening to the Lawyer Mastermind Podcast, where we help attorneys grow their law firms by interviewing experts who can fast track their success. Today, I'm super excited to be joined by Joey Coleman, the author of Never Lose a Customer Again, a business consultant, a keynote speaker. Joey, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, Casey, it's absolutely my pleasure. And we should probably also share in the interest of full disclosure, I'm a recovering attorney myself. So I'm excited to get the chance to talk to a bunch of uh, fellow lawyers that are your loyal listeners. That's awesome. And you know, I actually didn't know that uh, up front. I just learned that I think today. Um, so maybe I missed that when I read your book uh, the first time or, or maybe it wasn't in there, but I, I was actually really intrigued to you know, find that out today as well. Yeah, so it's been, for context, it's been about 20 years since I practiced law actively, um, but I grew up in that. My dad was a criminal defense lawyer, and so I kind of grew up, that was the family business, uh, spent a lot of time in that world, and obviously my three years of law school, and then I practiced for about five years after that, um, so kind of had a, an eclectic background that got its start in the legal community. Awesome, and you know, since you've uh, had that experience too, as a lawyer and working in a law firm, I think you're going to be able to bring, you know, a, another layer of additional help here that, I, that a lot of people can't, wouldn't get otherwise really. And, you know, I came working from a law firm where I was exposed to attorneys treating other potential customers poorly, even yelling <laughs> at potential clients over the phone. Hypothetically, that might've happened once or twice. Yeah, no, I get it. I get it. You know, a thing or two about that. And you know, that always seemed a bit crazy to me, but you know, as an attorney, putting yourself back in that world, did you see a lot of that with those poor customer interactions? And did oh, that drive you to do Oh my gosh, that? all the time, all the time, right? And, and let me be clear, since I said I worked for my dad, I didn't see it as much when I was working for him as much as I saw it uh, in some uh, internships and things I did at other firms. But here, here's the sure. thing that I think, um, and I don't say this to be judgmental of lawyers. What I'm about to say is meant to have empathy with the challenge of being a lawyer. Here's the problem. The typical lawyer at any given, these are American Bar Association statistics. Now they're from a few years ago. I haven't seen the most recent ones, but I still think they probably hold true. The typical lawyer who is in small business practice has at any given time, somewhere between 50 and 60-ish clients at whatever phase in the process they're in. So that's from the first time you meet them and they ink the representation deal up to if you've finished the document review or the contract creation or gone and gotten a not guilty or a guilty verdict if you're a criminal defense lawyer, whatever it is, or you've uh, gotten them an award in a PI case, whatever it may be, give or take 50 to 60. When I was practicing law, I averaged 240 at any wow. given time. Right. So if we stop and think about that, if we look at the number of business days in a year, I basically was spending one business day per year per client and I didn't have enough days. Wow. That's uh, that right? puts it in perspective. Well, so that kind of gets us into perspective. Now let's step into the client shoes. I did predominantly criminal defense, although I did a little bit of PI work, I did a little bit of an employment and contract work, but mostly criminal defense. For somebody who is being charged in a criminal defense setting, that is for most people, the most important thing going on in their life at that time. 
Because if they're found guilty of it, especially the kind of clients I represented, we did a lot of like what I would call heavy felony, you know, B plus to A plus felonies. And where I practiced in Iowa, that meant, you know, an A felony is um, you're going to go to jail for 99 years or more. Right. Okay. Uh, so significant, significant cases. Yeah. Um, or drunk driving cases or possession cases that you might lose your driver's license or something for, you know, three months, six months, a year. Cases that had, you know, they weren't parking tickets. Let's put it that way. Okay. So for my clients, that was one of the biggest stress factors, emotional drains, things they were worried about in their life to date, certainly within that year. Now let's go back to the earlier statement about how many I had. So something that for my client was the most important thing of their year made up one day of my year. Good point. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying that I didn't care about all my clients. I did. I love them dearly. I tried my best to look out for them and we had great results. But the reality is most lawyers have detached from the empathetic understanding that for your client, the thing you're working on may be the most important thing of their entire year. But for you, it's one of the cases you're working on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I think just from that um, understanding, I recognized that lawyers, by their very nature of the practice, have a challenge when it comes to client experience and client relationships and client communication. Just because we're representing more of them and our perspective is we're representing all of you. And from their perspective, we're the most important client they have or at least were the ones they think about the most. So that kind of led me into this, you know, and I was practicing for context and relevance to our conversation today. I graduated law school in 98. So I was interning as a lawyer and kind of practicing it through the 90s and then practicing through kind of the early 2000s. Um, And even at that time, when there was a heightened understanding of communicating with your clients, it was still pretty abysmal right? When you really think of the, the severity of the situation, the fees that were being charged, most lawyers only communicate with their clients via the monthly bill. Exactly. Yeah. That's the, that's the main piece of communication. And I've yet to meet a lawyer that can say that they've never had a client call up and say, what the heck is this item on my bill? Mm-hmm. No, right? exactly. So the main thing, and, and lots of times also, I think the other challenge lawyers have is that um, the way the law moves, there are long, long stretches where it seems to the client like nothing is happening, mm-hmm. but they're still spending money. Exactly. They see the money going out. They expect that maybe. But there are no results. There's nothing happening because you're waiting for the trial or you're waiting for things to be finalized. You know, they're paying either a monthly retainer or a monthly bill or whatever it may be. And there's challenges. So I wanted to make sure we prefaced our conversation with me saying, I totally empathize with both sides of the coin. The client who feels like, wait, what am I really paying for? And I'm not getting the level of communication. And I don't know the full status of where things are at all given times. And I'm really emotionally invested and involved and the attorney working a bunch of different cases at the same time managing a bunch of relationships at the same time and sometimes just being at the mercy of the courts and the legal system that hey your hearing isn't for two months there's not a lot we're going to do between now and the hearing i'm sorry but what what am i going to tell you hey guess what this week we did nothing on your case yet again this week right because that's going to irritate a client too (laughs) 
Wow. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, then that's interesting perspective. And, you know, I don't think anybody would want to hear we've done nothing on your case. And it's funny, you know, I started off with kind of an extreme example of, you know, maybe the yelling at a potential client. But then on the other side, we have, you know, I've worked with a law firm that gets 100 positive reviews a month from people that aren't their clients. They just treat them well over the phone mm -hmm. uh, and they answer their questions well enough to the point where, hey, I want to leave a review. So, you know, I, I can see it, uh, you know, on, from all different points too. And then, you know, our listeners, we have some that might be doing like more of the business to consumer, but we also have business to business law firms as well. Are they going to take a different approach with uh, how they treat their clients? Well, what I have found is that most lawyers take a different approach, but I'm not sure that they should. What I mean by that is there's a huge discussion in the business world of, well, are you B2B or are you B2C? Are you business to business or business to consumer? The reality is you're H to H. You're human to human. At the end of the day, the person on the other line, whether they're writing a check from their personal account or their business account, or whether they're processing a payment from their company's account, it's a human in the interaction. And I would posit that in a B2B environment, it actually is more important to be human because there are often layers where the person who's paying you or the person who's communicating with you is not the person who's receiving the benefit of the work you're doing. So I run into this a lot of times with my corporate clients where they'll send an invoice to one of their clients that is paid by the CFO or the accounting department or whatever it may be, only to realize to have the accounting department saying, why are we spending so much money? Well, it's because they're not seeing the fruits of the labors. They're not the ones that are actually seeing the proof. They're just seeing invoices. And so we could have a whole conversation about how do you design your invoices to justify your expenses to people who may not have an understanding of what you're paying for or what you're doing. And all these little communications that we have, whether it's in a B2C or a B2B environment, matter because they contribute to the better understanding that our client has of the work we're doing and the value we're providing. Okay. Yeah. And do you think it makes a lot of sense to set those proper expectations up front? I mean, talking a little bit about the onboarding process, is it worth optimizing that experience and paying attention to that? I would say only 100% worth it. Oh, that's um, yeah, that, that's it. You know, um, here, here's the crazy thing, Casey, when you look at businesses around the world, now these are not law firm specific statistics, but they include law firms. Okay. Okay. Um, when we look at businesses around the world, somewhere between 20 and 70% of your new clients will decide to stop doing business with you before they reach the 100 day anniversary. Wow, that's shocking. 70%, right? So literally companies are hemorrhaging. People are running out the back door as quickly as they run in the front door. Now, whenever I speak to lawyers, I'll get lawyers saying, well, Joey, you don't understand. We barely get the retainer in and the paperwork done and discovery going by the time we reach 100 days. I get it. But in their mind, the value that they receive in the first 100 days is more dispositive as to their overall feeling of you lifetime in the relationship than any other time period. How we treat them in the first 100 days matters more than any other time period. It's where all the justification of value is created. It's where all the understanding of a value is created. And as you mentioned, managing expectations, I think the big problem a lot of lawyers have, not all, but a lot, is they do a great job of setting expectations in the in initial meeting when yeah. they're pitching the business. And then the second the client signs on the dotted line, 
that lawyer hands the bulk of the communication responsibility off to a paralegal or a secretary who was not in the meeting, who the client has never met, who is now the sole gatekeeper point of access to get back to the lawyer. Yeah, no. <laughs> and we wonder why our clients feel unappreciated. It's because, wait a second, who is this new person that it, when I call is the one I leave a message with, when I send an email is the one I get a reply from, when I get a letter in the mail or an invoice, it comes from them. Like, yeah, granted, the lawyer's name is stamped on, but guess what, folks? The client realizes it's a stamp with your signature as much as you realize it's a stamp with your signature, okay? Yep. And what happens is that creates um, a belief that there isn't as much rapport or connection or significance given to the relationship by the lawyer as being given by the client. So I think the huge opportunity for lawyers, regardless of what area of law you practice, is to continue to reset and reestablish expectations throughout the relationship. Most importantly for lawyers to remind them of what comes next. Here's what I mean by that. Typically, when you're a lawyer, you understand the rules of procedure. You understand the court filing time periods. You understand that, and let's take a criminal example uh, for just so that we have something to speak through. Um, the typical case that would come to me that was like a drunk driving first offense case. The likelihood of us being in court to try that case within one year of the charges being filed was less than 20%. That's low. Wow. 80% of our cases happened more than a year after the stop that led to the charge. Now, let's be clear. Some of that was strategy. Some of that was timing. Some of that was just the way the court systems are, are filled, right? Yeah. But to the client, they are thinking about the fear of losing their license every day from the day they got pulled over. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So while we would be saying, look, it's in your best interest to have this happen later, because by the way, you're still driving the whole time. Mm -hmm. They would see it as this is an open loop that is running. And when is the loop going to close? So your job as a lawyer is to constantly be reminding the client, here's where we are right now. Here's what we've done thus far. Here's what we have to do yet. And most importantly, here's what we're going to be focused on between now and next time you and I talk. And that could be we're going to be reviewing documents. It could be we're going to be finding experts. It could be we're going to be filing motions with the court. Whatever it may be, letting them know what you're going to do and reminding them that you're going to do it is crucial. And the reason we know it's crucial is because most humans don't read what they sign. That's true. Yeah. Okay? Including lawyers, ironically enough. Okay. When your client enters into a retainer agreement with you, very few retainer agreements I've ever seen detail the schedule for the court filings, the trial, the depositions, everything that's going to happen. Why? Because it would be impossible for us to articulate that in a contract on the day that we undergo representation, right? Because we have no idea what they're going to, we haven't even entered an appearance yet. And you're asking me to tell you when this thing's going to be scheduled for trial? I don't even know when it's going to be scheduled for trial. So we need to continue to remind the client at all times about where they are in the process, what comes next. And a lot of this is holding their hand. You know, it always amazed me when people talked about professionals when I was growing up, it was either become a doctor or a lawyer. Those were kind of the two professions. Now I recognize there are many other professions, but those were the two that were frequently 
at least that I was exposed the most to. And lots of times with doctors, they talk about why don't doctors take a class in bedside manner? That's funny. <laughs> well, why don't lawyers? Because I don't know about you, but the law school I went to, I had to actively seek out a course in client relationship. And it was only available to third years. And we were limited to 15 of us in the class per wow. year. So I, I went to George Washington Law School, biggest law school in the country at the time. There were 500 law students, okay, per class, biggest law school in the country. And 15 were allowed to take the client communications class. Now, mind again, wow. I'm dating myself. This is back in the 80s, right? Or back in the late 90s. So I'm thinking to myself, most law schools haven't changed their curriculum. Why aren't lawyers taught how to manage the relationships and the communications with their clients? At best, it gets a, a random covering in ethics class, but usually that's what not to do. <laughs> you get a random covering in some of your classes where there's a discussion of a lawyer who failed to communicate or did something wrong, but we don't have any best practices teaching. We don't have any best practices, practical application of here's how you hold your client's hand. Here's how you let them know that you're taking it seriously that they might go to prison for the rest of their life. Yeah. No, that's you know? and, and so what do we do? And lots of times you learn that on the road, if you will, and kind of in practice, you know, from more senior lawyers that might be mentors of yours or things you see. But there's, there's really a lack of education and communication about this in the marketplace, or at least in my opinion. Yeah, no, and I agree. And I think it's not just isolated to law firms, right? Like all businesses kind of uh, are, are in this situation. And in fact, you know, but whether it's a law firm or any other type of business, I feel like we put a lot of attention up front at winning that client, maybe doing little things there. But then, like you said, maybe right after that, oh, it's passed, uh, passed along, so... Yeah, no, it's crazy. And Casey, you're absolutely right. This is pervasive, not only in law firms, this is pervasive in society, mm -hmm. right? If we were to go on Amazon right now, and we were to search in the category of books with the keyword for searching sales. So we're trying to find books that have been written on sales. And okay. we were to write down how many results we got. And then we were to erase that result. And we were to search the keyword marketing. And we were to write down that number and we would add those two numbers together, we would get about 1.3 million books that had been written on sales and marketing. Wow. 1.3 million with an M, okay? Now, if we were to erase those search results, and instead we were to search client retention, client relationship, uh, client experience, client service, customer service, customer experience, customer retention, account management, relationship management, every phrase you possibly could think of about what happens after the client transitions from being a prospect to a client. And you were to add up all of the numbers of those searches and not worry about deduping any of them for any, where they might show up in both. You get okay. about 30,000 books. Wow. That's a big discrepancy. So for those of you that were told there was no math during the uh, uh, podcast, I promise you this will be the only math. Okay. What that means is when we divide those two numbers, for every 47 books that have been written on how to get a client, one book is written on how to keep a client. Wow. It's no surprise to me that we over-index on client acquisition and rainmaking. I don't know about you. When I was in school, I never heard anybody talking about rainwater retention. No. Uh -uh. Nobody talked about rainmaking. 
How do you get more clients? How do you get them to throw more money? Not how do you keep clients. The closest conversation you'd ever have about keeping clients was, well, find out if they like to golf or not and go golf with them. Wow, yeah. And then there was a discussion of whether you should win or not. Like, that was about as sophisticated (laughs) as client retention was. Folks, we can do better than this. We're smarter than this. We've got the ability to do better than this. Most businesses don't have a system and process for onboarding their clients that is designed to retain their clients. Yeah. And probably speaks more true in the world of lawyers than any other world, which ironically enough, in a profession where so much is based on sequencing and timing and rules and a process, it's shocking to me how few law firms have a process for onboarding their clients beyond getting them to sign the retainer or the retention agreement. Yeah, no, that's true. And, you know, I can relate to that too, because my friend is involved in a lawsuit right now. Uh, he's working with a firm that I never heard of, but it's uh, a part of the Zantac cases. And, you know, they handheld him at the beginning and now he signed on his case. I mean, this is going to be, you know, a mass tort thing. It's, and he's, he says, oh, I'm not getting updates, but he, they, he doesn't have that experience or that, that uh, expectation that was set properly. So he's looking for something fast when this is going to drag out for a long time. Probably yeah. years. Exactly. Probably years. Yeah. And, here, and here's the thing. As a general rule, as humans, when we are personally involved, it's hard to over-communicate what comes next. That, that's a good point. Right? Mm-hmm. And again, we can see this just in our human behavior. What happens when the average person gets a new product in the mail? They open it up and they try to use it. Yeah. They don't read the instructions manual. They don't go online and watch videos of how to use it, especially, and this is a sweeping stereotype, but it applies and the research shows it, especially men have a <laughs> tendency to just try to use it, just try Definitely. to make it happen, right? Um, what was fascinating, everybody talks about the iPhone and what a brilliant invention the iPhone and the iPod were. One of the most brilliant things that Steve Jobs and the team at Apple did is they were the first consumer electronic product to send the product to you fully charged. Really? I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. So if we think back to the old days, I know we're dating ourselves here, friends, but think back to the old days when you used to buy something and you get it home and you'd have to plug it in for eight to 12 hours before you could use it for the first time. Now you go to the Apple store, you open the iPhone, they sell it to you in the room. They turn it on while you're sitting there and you make a call while you're in the store and then you leave and your phone's working. We live in an era of instant gratification. People want it now. Just because the legal system hasn't caught up with that doesn't mean that consumers' minds haven't been preconditioned to expect that. So that's why I keep reemphasizing. We need to let them know what's coming next, what's next in the process, and hold their hand every step of the way. So... Let's talk about that first hundred days then. If we want to hold their hand, you know, every way too, and really create a good experience where we're delighting our customers, what are some ways that we can do that? Well, I think the first thing to do is to recognize that your clients go through a series of phases during the representation. Most lawyers think of those phases as there's the phase before they became a client, there's a phase while they're a client, and there are a phase after their project's done. Yeah, like yeah. they think of it just as that. And I, and I don't say this to be critically. It's critical. I used to think of it this way as well. 
I believe there's actually eight phases. If I may, Casey, let me give you an overview of the eight phases and kind of what, how they would match up. And, and let's use, for example, um, a, uh, a criminal defense case. Um, let's use, uh, you know, uh, let's use possession of uh, illegal drugs, just okay. as an example. Okay, we'll keep it exciting and spicy. Um, and for those of you listening that don't work in that world, forgive me. Um, it's actually a better thing that you don't because that's a crazy world to work in. Trust me, I did it for many years, um, but it at least give us some context for the example. So phase one is the assess phase. This is when a prospective client is trying to consider whether or not they want to hire you as their lawyer. They're going to be talking to their friends. They're going to be looking at your website. They might be calling around asking people, hey, do you know somebody who can help me with this type of problem? They might be going to the yellow pages. I know that sounds crazy and trying to, you know, let their fingers do the walking and figure out who their lawyer is going to be. Okay, they have the assess phase. This is probably going to include an initial meeting with you, depending on how you have your business practice set up, where they'll do an initial free consultation. Okay. We then go to phase two, the admit phase. The admit phase is when the prospect admits that they have a problem or a need that they believe you can solve and they transition from being a prospect to a client. Now, in a typical free consultation meeting, that might occur in that meeting where you kind of explain, hey, here's your, pro you've explained what your problem is. I think to represent you would cost X dollars. I'd be able to help you. And they say, great, I want to hire you. And they sign on the dotted line. We know the admit phase is the start of day one of the first 100 days, okay? That's when they officially become a client and the clock starts ticking for 100 days. The way you know it's admit is it usually involves signing on the dotted line and or handing over cash, okay? That's okay. how you know when the admit phase in your business is. We then go to phase three, the affirm phase. The affirm phase is the buyer's remorse stage where they walk out of your office and they begin to doubt the decision that they just made to hire you, okay? Okay. The affirm stage lasts as long as it takes to get to the next phase, phase four, the activate phase. Now, depending on what kind of client you're representing, the activate phase is the first real moment of truth where you start to do work for them and the proof of your work is evident. In a criminal defense case, that could be when you move to be admitted to represent that client, okay, or an initial hearing or something like that. They're going to get to see you in action for the first time. They're going to know this is real, okay? Okay. Most lawyers do a good, and that, so that's the activate phase, right? So most lawyers do a good job up until the activate phase. They have the assess phase, we're trying to figure out, the admit phase, they sign on the dotted line. The affirm phase, most lawyers struggle with this because nothing really happens usually between the signing of the paper and that first hearing other than you getting a, an alert that says, or an email or a physical mail uh, letter that says, hey, we need to see you in court next week at 9 a.m. for your initial appearance, right? Sure. There's nothing happening. And during that time, they're doubting all this money they just agreed to pay you in this relationship. Yeah, the money's gone. Mm -hmm. Money's gone. So that would be a great opportunity for us to step in and remind them that we're excited about the representation. We're going to take great care of them. So then we have the activate phase. In the activate phase, we want to energize the relationship. This is that first real moment of truth. Now, most lawyers know that showing up for an initial appearance in court is not that exciting of a moment. It looks nothing like what they've seen on TV or in the movies, right? Yeah. There's no objecting. There's no witnesses. There's no, you know, 
I'm holding you in contempt conversations, right? Everything that they believe what a courtroom looks like. In fact, many times the client doesn't even come to that initial. Yep. Mm -hmm. Right? They might, depending on the type of law you're practicing, right? So we need to make this a seminal moment in their life. We need to make this a marker that says, look, you're getting what you paid for. We then come to phase five. Okay, phase five is the acclimate phase. Now, in the typical legal world where this is different from the business world clients that I have, this phase could last months. Who knows how long the acclimate phase is? And the reason we don't know is let me jump ahead to the next phase. Phase six is the accomplish phase. The accomplish phase is when the resolution occurs for which the prospective client really hoped. So in the criminal case that I gave you the example of, resolution is a judge or a jury saying not guilty. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That could be a year later. What that means is those first hundred days are going to be all about acclimating, not about accomplishing. Good point. So what are we doing at all of those steps along the way to let them know we're still in it? We're still with you. We're holding your hand. Okay. So we help acclimate to get them to the accomplish phase. Then after the accomplish phase come the last two phases. Phase seven, the adopt phase. This is when the client becomes loyal to you and only you. They're not going anywhere else because they feel so well taken care of. You've achieved the goal they had for them. They are bought in. So you get them off the charges. You get them the great deal. You get them whatever it may be. And they're loyal and they're committed to you. And if they ever face this problem again, they're going to come to you. Mm -hmm. And then phase eight, the final phase, the advocate phase, where they are going to refer friends and families and colleagues who have similar problems to you. Yeah. Now, here's the cool thing about lawyers. Most lawyers are real familiar with referrals. And most lawyers live and die based on referrals. I have never met a lawyer, Casey, who said, I've got enough referrals. I don't want any more. Me either. I've never heard that. I've never met it. Maybe it exists. Folks, if you're listening and that qualifies, reach out to me at joeycoleman.com. I would love to hear your story. I'd love to have a conversation. I've never met a lawyer who's done with referrals. And I've never met a lawyer that every one of their clients makes referrals. Yeah, I mean, that many brand advocates, like net promoters, that's crazy. You would think that you would, if you're doing a good job, every client would be referring people to you, but they're not. Why? Yeah, why? Well, for two reasons. Number one, we haven't walked them through all the eight phases. Number two, most lawyers don't know how to ask for referrals. They don't know when to ask for referrals. And they have beliefs, which some of which are solidly grounded in the rules of ethics about how they can or can't ask for referrals. Yeah, that's a hurdle. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of challenges, but if you want more referrals in your practice, you have to have a better onboarding process. So it's, I know it sounds counterintuitive, but expecting every client to refer you without having an onboarding process is like going on a first date And at the end of the meal, you know, you you have a wonderful dinner. You go on the date. It's fantastic. The conversation is driving. You take the person back to their house. You walk them to the front door and you're standing outside and you say, hey, I loved our conversation. I loved our date tonight. They said, I loved our date too. And you say, fantastic. I'd love to go on another date with you. They say, great. I'd love to as well. You say, what about next Friday? They say, that's too long. Let's go Tuesday. You say, this is fantastic. By the way, Quick question. You mentioned during dinner that you have two roommates. My gut instinct is your roommates are of similar age, similar situation. They're in a similar type of business, similar types of wants and needs. Would you be willing to provide me with an introduction to those people? Because I imagine they'd like to date me too. Wow. Okay. You'd get slapped if you did that in your personal life. 
And yet that's how most lawyers approach their business referrals. They go to their clients and they say, who else in your industry might need help with a contract? Who else do you know that's running in late nights at the bars that might be getting pulled over for drunk driving? Who else do you know that's been in a car accident like you were? Yeah. Mm -hmm. We're asking really weird, wrong, inappropriate questions with really poor timing. And then we're surprised when we don't get referrals. Most lawyers I know, this is how their referral works. The phone rings, somebody, their assistant or their secretary or paralegal answers, and they say, yeah, um, John Smith suggested I call you. And we think, why did I represent John Smith? I don't even remember John Smith. Oh, quick, get him on the, let's get it scheduled. And then you schedule the thing. And then they never thank John Smith for the referral. Yep. Mm -hmm. They never even acknowledge that they got a referral. And guess what? Your clients are a lot like little children. And I say this not from a place of judgment. All humans are like this. When we see a behavior that we like, we need to reinforce it if we want that behavior to continue. Most people that get referrals never acknowledge or appreciate the referral. And I'm not talking about a kickback or some type of a referral fee or a payment, although those are things you can do ethically in certain contexts. I'm talking about even a thank you note that says, hey, Casey, thanks so much for referring your neighbor, Beth, to have me help her out with her contract, contract claim. You have no idea how much it means to me that you would trust me to take care of her as well as I took care of you. Rest assured that while the rules don't allow me to keep you updated exactly as to what's going on with the case, from time to time, I'll let you know if things are going well or not going well. Wow, that's powerful. That's Most lawyers listening to this podcast have never written a referral thank you, ever, in their careers. I'm kind of cringing right now, too, just to be honest. I mean, this, and here's the thing. If you're feeling that way, know that I'm not saying this from a place of judgment. I'm saying it from a place of opportunity. There is a huge opportunity. And let me tell you, if you're cringing, it means most of the people listening are cringing. And if you start thanking your people, word spreads. And when you start thanking your referrals for referral business, they will start to refer you more. This is the law of reciprocity. This is how it works, right? So here's the great thing about being a lawyer. The bar for creating a great client experience is lying on the ground. (laughs) The competition is horrible. We know this. I don't know about you. I used to sit in law school and look around and think, this is why people hate lawyers. Yeah. And I say that not to be critical of my classmates. I say that because this is the nature of the profession, right? We have gone way too long as a profession without having an emphasis on rapport building, and relationship building and bedside manner. It's long past due time that we pay attention to that. And that's what's gonna carry a business forward. It's not, hey, we have a new website or we've got a better billboard or we've got a new TV ad or whatever it may be. Those things market and those necessarily move the dial. But you know what is legal in every jurisdiction ethically? To treat your clients well to be in regular communication with them, to let them know what's happening next, and to make sure if at every moment in the timeline of representation, they are feeling well taken care of and provided for. Depending on what jurisdiction you're in, you have to get approval for ads or billboards or things like that. You'd never have to get approval for taking care of your people. You never have to get approval for sending them a letter that says, here's an unexpected update on the status of your case. 
In fact, if you look at most ethical violations that occur in bar associations, it's for lack of communication. Yeah, that's true. That's the majority. See, here's the crazy thing, Casey. And I know I'm ranting now, so forgive me. But I get ramped up about this stuff. When I, I was in, when I was in law school, you go to ethics class, and everybody talks about the oh, you end up having an affair with a client, or you take money from a client, or you move things out of your trust fund. They talk about all the outlier ethical cases. The number one reason most lawyers get into trouble when it comes to an ethical violation is failure to communicate. It's yeah. nothing else. And yet we don't talk about that. And it drives me insane. I'm like, how do we not spend, you know, if, if the semester long course, how do we not spend every day of the semester except two on communication and then spend the last two on hooking up with your client, taking their money, doing the stupid stuff that we all know we shouldn't do, right? Instead, yeah. we spend all the time talking about that. And then there's like a throwaway about a letter. Make sure you send a letter every once in a while. A letter. It's 2020. Enough already. Wow. Yeah. There's no ways to do this. Wow. Well, I mean, that is so awesome. And, you know, that's such great advice that, that can really help people, you know, starting today. There's not a lot of barrier to entry. And like you said, the bar is set really low right now, quite literally. <laughs> it's on the ground. It's <laughs> literally on the ground. All I'm asking you to do is pick your foot up so you don't trip over it. You don't even have to get a running start to jump over it. It's literally on the ground. This is why there are more lawyer jokes than any other profession. Makes this sense. is also why there's more lawyer TV shows and movies than any other profession, right? It's people are enamored with this idea of lawyers and the law and it's high emotion, high stakes involvement. When you've been a lawyer for a while, you get used to that. You get desensitized to the fact that this is your client's lives. This is so important to them. What are we doing just to let them know that we equally consider it to be important? That's it. I'm not asking you to do anything more than what I believe the majority of your listeners are already doing, which is really caring about their clients. But do me a favor. Tell them. Exactly. Show exactly. them. Don't just do it. Show them, prove it. And not from a weird like, hey, let me prove it to you and justify every expense. No, but from a genuine empathetic, sympathetic point of view of, hey, I know you're going through some tough time right now. I'm in this with you. I'm thinking about it all the time. I'm working it all on time. I've got you. We're going to get through this together. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. And I feel like you can really stand out in a crowded market just by making these changes and kind of become that only choice because of, again, where, where the bar is. So this is incredible. Well, Joey, you have so much good advice and, and you know, I probably have a hundred more questions I could ask, but unfortunately for the sake of time, I'm unable to do that. Uh, but I will tell everybody that I think they should all read your book. I mean, I read your book and I've started to make changes, especially on the onboarding process, client videos, and we've done small gifts and things like that now that have really resonated with our clients. So how can people find your book? What's the best way for them to get all of the knowledge that you have up here into their heads? Well, I appreciate that, Casey. Um, so, the so the book is called Never Lose a Customer Again. And for lawyers, just replace customer with client and it applies to you, okay? I promise. It's all the same methodologies. It works whether you're a lawyer or whether you're selling tires. You know, what, whatever your business is, this stuff applies. Because if you have human beings as clients, these principles work. 
so the book's called Never Lose a Customer Again. It's available on Amazon. It's available at your local bookstore. We've got basically three different versions of the book. So there's the hard copy if you want it on your shelf. There's the ebook if you like reading that way. And because you're listening to a podcast, I always like to mention there's an audible book, which I actually narrate. So if you've enjoyed listening to me go, although I don't rant nearly as much in the audio book, um, you can hear me read the book to you. Uh, the thing I'll say that I'll put there out there for lawyers, because most lawyers, and I say this respectfully, don't have run into guarantees very often. If you buy the book and you read the book or you listen to the book and you don't feel like you got your value, my email is throughout the book. And my promise is I will refund the cost of the book to anyone who reads the book and doesn't believe they got significantly more value than what they paid for it. So there's really no downside to giving it a try. And what I will tell you is one lawyer to another, or recovering attorney in my current case, you know, to another, the bar is on the ground. If you apply two or three of these ideas, and the book for you, for context, because lawyers like case studies, has 46 case study examples from companies small, medium, and large, domestic and international, product and service, online and offline, you name it. Um, to show how you can apply this across a bunch of different scenarios. Now, sometimes people get anxious because they're looking for the one that applies it to their business, but lawyers are really good at this because you're used to reading a ton of different cases and fact patterns and applying it to the core principles. The core principles of the eight phases are all there. Uh, so check that out. Last but not least, joeycoleman.com is my website. Uh, experience this is my podcast. It's called the Experience This Show. So experiencethisshow.com. Go to either of those places. You can see videos of me, listen to podcasts. We talk about this kind of stuff. And I'm always happy to help, especially lawyers. I believe that lawyers historically were one of the most noble professions in society. They have the opportunity to get back to that. And the path back to that is caring for your clients. It's, no, it's not any more complex nor any more simple than caring for your clients. That's beautiful, well said. Well, Joey, thank you again so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. I, you know, here's a testimonial, buy the book. It will change your life. And, you know, we're just kind of in the beginning processes of uh, implementing these things, but I can tell you that I'm making all of my team leadership read it as well. We're already seeing those results. We got a testimonial, just so you know, yesterday, where they saw the video that we did, part of the onboarding process of who they're gonna be working with now, and they were, they said that was a nice touch. And we were just like, we've never had that before in 10 years. Like, you know, I love details. Casey, that's fantastic. Yeah. That's the fun thing about this is you can do these little experiments and the payoffs come very quickly. You know, this isn't something where I'm asking you to invest, you know, millions of dollars and you'll see the payoff 10 years from now. This is stuff that you can decide to make some changes in your business, implement them tomorrow. Cause most of them are low cost, low, you know, bandwidth requirements that will have a significant impact on your client experience. Awesome. Well, thanks again so much, Joey. We appreciate it. And I look forward to uh, catching up again soon. Thanks, Casey. Appreciate the time. And thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks. Take care. Awesome. You are so